That's how interesting her work is. So that work loop calorimeter is an experimental device developed and fine-tuned by the Auckland Bioengineering Institute over the past 20 years. The device performs stress length work loops on cardiac trabeculae, which are muscles that are dissected out from the ventricles. Sounds fascinating, right? Well, Good news. Behind the Bench co-hosts Dr. Charlotte Alselman and Dr. Tommy Martin are here to rescue me from this intro and interview Dr. Garrett and find out more about her scientific journey and why Winkessel loaded loops are important. Tommy? Hi, Amy. It's great to meet you. Very excited to, to talk with you today. Actually, before we even get started, I just had a thought while Kara was doing the intro. Is Winkessel the proper pronunciation since it's German, or is it like Winkessel? <laughs> um, that is a good question. I would say Winkessel is most likely not the correct pronunciation, nice. but um, it is the pronunciation that I and most people I know okay, use. Okay, so that's acceptable to use that. Perfect. I didn't want to throw Kara under the bus at all, but I, <laughs> I had a thought. But can you tell us a little bit about the project and what led you to studying this specifically? And some of the key findings maybe that you had takeaways from this sure. paper? The journey of the Winkessel kind of did start back in 2016 with my master's, but this most recent uh, work is kind of the culmination of a lot of engineering work to get the, the model and the loading system working. But to make a long story short, in this paper, we looked at specifically comparing this model loading system, so based on the Winkessel model, to how work loops were previously performed, both in our lab, in our calorimeter, and by other researchers um, looking at stress length work loops. So traditionally, you, you can guide these little one-dimensional samples of muscle around a stress length loop that reflects that pressure volume loop of the, of the intact ventricle. And traditionally, that shortening phase or the ejection phase was maintained flat and kept isotonic. So the same stress maintained throughout that phase of the loop. By using our model, however, we can, we can approximate how the arterial afterload affects those ejection dynamics in the ventricle and apply that to our little samples of muscle. So I really just wanted to look at whether this was going to affect the mechanical outcome of those loops. And whether that has this flow-on effect to affect the efficiency of the muscle and, and the energetics happening. And 
through the process, we found that there were some quite remarkable changes. So there was more work done by the muscle under the modelled load compared to the former load. Uh, but there was no significant change in the heat output, so the energy consumption was remaining approximately the same. So that resulted in quite a significant increase in the mechanical efficiency. So a 25% increase comparing that conventional loading method to the new model-based load. And that's kind of the, the principal outcome of, of this paper. So would, that, would a good summary be our hearts are more efficient than the conventional model would have had us believe? I think it's more when we're doing these experiments where we take these muscles out and we're trying to replicate the kind of the dynamics, the, the mechanical environment that they experience in the heart, we have to really think about how we replicate that. By and large, the work loop performed was almost the same between the conventional and the modeled load. The only thing we changed was we used this model to determine how it shortened. So the, the time course of that shortening, so when shortening initiated, so that onset, and the time course as it steps through that one phase of, of the four phase work loop. It was, it was only that phase that we, that we modulated with the model um, and it had quite a significant impact on those those mechanics and the energetic outcomes. So in the paper, I noticed it's a three element Winkessel model. Can you remind me of like the three elements here and are there more than just three technically in physiology or is three like the maximum you could model? So I think I should dive a little bit more into the Winkessel model and where it comes from. So it originated, um, based on some of the old German fire engine pumps. And the idea is to replicate that storing of energy by the large elastic arteries downstream from the ventricle and how that energy is then dissipated in the, into the peripheral arterial system. So when the heart ejects into the aorta, those elastic walls distend and they store energy and store some volume of blood in that section of the system. Then when ejection ceases and the outlet valve closes, that stored energy continues to supply a flow of blood into the peripheral system. So this kind of can be replicated by an electrical circuit. So low pass filters in an electrical circuit involve at the very least a resistor, a single resistor and a single capacitor. So a capacitor stores charge, much like the, the aorta stores that energy. And then when the pressure source or the voltage source, in the case of the electrical circuit, turns off, that electrical charge is dissipated from the capacitor through the resistor. And that's much like how the energy stored in the aorta dissipates when ejection ceases through that peripheral resistance in the system. So to go back to the original question, um, the three element is the most simple version of the system that still very well replicates this afterload system in the body without getting too complicated, but you can actually increase from three elements. So the four element Winkessel involves an inductance term to look at the inductance of blood as it flows through the system. And you can then also extend the Winkessel style of, of model to encapsulate any number of branches of the arterial system. 
so you can get quite complicated. Um, I've seen kind of 10, 20 element models of these when you're getting into the rest of the body and modeling the entire complex arterial system. Yeah, that seems like it would be a very hard paper to interpret if you had a 20, 20 element Windcastle. Would have been yeah. a challenge to read. Um, but yeah, this paper was very straightforward and, and really awesome. And it seemed like it was building on also previous work on, on two element Windcastle, right? This is kind of the, the first passage into that, that, that three element and, and applying it to this type of system. And the, the data obviously are very informative. So the other reason that um, we're sticking with the three element Winkessel is because of the constraints of, of applying this model in our system. So this model is being solved in real time, which means that at a rate of 20 kilohertz, so every 50 microseconds, this model is solving to give us that um, approximation of arterial afterload impedance. Um, and that helps us inform the muscle of how to shorten in a way that reflects this model. So, so in this device, of course, every, every 50 microseconds, we're measuring the force production of this little piece of muscle, and that's our input into our model. And then all of there's a, there's a collection of ODEs that are solving to figure out if this force and this, these afterload parameters, what is the ejection out of our ventricle, and how do we relate that to this little sample of muscle? And then we use that to inform the system how to shorten that muscle to reflect that modeled load. So it's all happening very quickly, very fast. So um, ideally, of course, like as many elements as you want to make it you know, better reflect all of those branches of arteries and resistances, but at the end of the day, coming back to the simplest representation that works is always kind of the best way forward with these complex, fast systems. So Amy, and looking at your other work, it seems to me like I, I realize you published a lot in this area. Um, is this paper sort of the culmination of a series of experiments or is this one more step and you have places you want to go after this or, or where does this paper fit into your body of work? I definitely think that in a lot of ways, this paper is the, the culmination of, of quite a lot of different things. I started developing the model itself in my master's in 2016, and then started my PhD in 2017. So there's been a few kind of building blocks of the model published as methods and some other work to do with some of the basal heat modeling, um, but all of it's come together into this paper to really do a study to look at how it works compared to compared to the conventional load. And for me, it's it's work I'm quite proud of because it is really the the key outcome of my PhD work essentially and what I've been working for about five years to to get um, you know published. Wow. Uh, congratulations. I, I know I worked with uh, a little bit with an engineer. And so uh, in my, in my, he was doing his PhD in the lab where I did mine and I've seen publications in IEEE and that kind of thing. And I, I've seen the ways that these things get broken down. So in senior pubs, I had some idea that this was the culmination of a lot of work and um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's wonderful to read. Thank you. Obviously, it's been like a, a ride to get to this point. What would you consider to be maybe the most challenging aspect of the project? What was something that was a big hurdle for you along that, that trajectory? That's a good question. I think, I mean, COVID is always going to be 
a stumbling block for a lot of people over the past few years. So restricting, we, we had some quite severe restricted access to the lab for a number of months at multiple different points in time. But COVID aside, I think, and this is true of any kind of PhD work in the science field in particular, um, but working with instrumentation is that uh, it's actually a combination instrumentation and also working with samples, muscle samples, is that sometimes the equipment doesn't work or breaks or is challenging. And then also sometimes the, the samples, the muscles, they just don't play ball that day. So I think there is always a level of, is the system going to work today? Is the muscle going to contract? Is everything going to die? Is Am I going to, <laughs> I think I think anyone that works with any sort of biological tissue or sample will have moments where um, it just seems like someone sneezed wrong that day and, and everything just didn't work. So, um, it's always it's always amazing to me looking back and seeing my colleagues work just how much energy goes into the experimental side so i i always have an appreciation when i see papers with large n numbers so n equals 20 or 30 and i'm like that is a lot of time and energy that's gone into <laughs> collecting those that's that's really funny i was thinking of in my phd a similar situation where we were doing you know, individual cardiomyocytes and, and some days things would work. And then when they wouldn't work and you tell your boss or my boss at the time, I was like, this isn't working today. He's like, oh, it's because it snowed last night. It's just not going to work today. That doesn't happen. And I was like, but the building is temperature controlled. <laughs> um, so we ended up having like rituals. It's like things we would try every day. Okay, you have to do everything the same way. And then you have to like put all your pipettes right here did you find yourself having a ritual or a, a rain dance that you had to perform prior to the experiment? Yeah, I think I depended a lot on um, my supervisor, Dr. J.C. Hahn. He has so much experience in this in this area. Um, the calorimeter is a device that he has used back to front, up to down, and his expertise in keeping these muscles alive was invaluable really appreciated but you know there's always things and I always think back to in during my master's and my really initial stage stage of these experiments and I was still learning when I accidentally put only 10% of the calcium I was supposed to put in the solution that day and wondered why nothing contracted and then thought back and realized that there was just no calcium available because I just had made all of the solutions that day wrong and you know there's always situations where you're like okay it was actually me today. That's so relatable. I think I, I always find students when they first join the lab think that science is a lot of us sitting around wearing glasses and like smoking pipes and thinking really smart things. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's mostly why is that machine not working? Why does that computer smell like smoke? Oh God, the computer smells like smoke. Oh God, unplug it. Now the computer doesn't work. We just had our lab computer die and we lost some data. Anyway, so yeah, it's a lot of that, a lot of troubleshooting. And so Amy, I have to say, you said when you see papers with big sample sizes, you're very impressed. I read this paper and I was like, this was a ton of work. I am very impressed. So that really, it comes across, trust me. <laughs> Thank you. 
I should also give a shout out as well to my my other supervisor, Professor Andrew Tabiner. Um, if if JC is the is the muscle guru, then Andrew is the device guru. He is the instrumentation engineer, and I've learned so much from him over my PhD. But um, he's the one that keeps the device. We, we all contribute, of course, but he's the one that really knows this device. So um, I suppose I should give a little bit of a rundown as well on the calorimeter. There's been so much engineering that's gone into this device in particular over the past 20 or so years and lots of Andrew's time and, and other professors' time and also a lot of PhD students' time um, to get bits and pieces um, of this device working. You've got this tiny little measurement chamber that measures one millimeter in across in diameter. And we put these these little pieces of muscle in between these two hooks. And you've got this force transducer on one side and a little linear motor on the other. And they're all controlled by lasers. There's a laser interferometer system that measures how much force and measures where the motor is. And then it feeds into this this control architecture that's been built up over the years that measures everything and controls everything. And there's temperature sensors and heaters and a flow system that controls the flow rate exactly in the measurement chamber. And everything is so impressively built over these years to give us this amazing device to do these experiments with. So a lot of people to, to um, acknowledge in this process as well. So where do we go next with this, Amy? Like, what are your plans for your follow-up studies or the applications or implications? Or are you going to go do something completely different? I think there's so much uh, scope to use this model. So we've now got this, this loading system where we can control these work loops based on, on parameters of the arterial system. So there's lots of places it could go. I've I've done a little bit more work um, as well as part of my PhD in extending the model to also look at preload. So um, I'm actually just working on the publication at the moment to kind of get the methods of this out there. But what I, I tried to do was actually close the loop between this afterload system and model kind of a very basic entire cardiovascular system to help then inform the restretch of the muscle, which is analogous to the preload in the ventricle. So looking at how the afterload and the preload interact in, in the system to um, determine where the work loop goes is another area to look at. But I've also, so after I finished my PhD a year ago, a year ago this month actually, um, I have started a different postdoc uh, position. So I've jumped organs completely. I'm actually looking at the uterus and I'm trying to figure out basically how the muscle in the uterus works, both um, electrophysiology. So I'm learning some really cool experimental techniques that originated in the gastrointestinal group here using some flexible electrodes um, placed on smooth muscle organs. And I'm, I've done a little bit of measurement of the uterus in rats using these um, flexible electrodes in vivo. But I'm also trying to extend that and look at kind of ex vivo, how that smooth muscle layer in the uterus works and, and things like that. I wish we were going to post the video of this because like mine and Kara's faces when Amy said uterus, we were both like, oh, we love the very uterus. Good. <laughs> Honestly, the uterus is, so interesting. It's where it's at. It's 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 where everyone should be. 
that should the be a shirt for like, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's where it's at. Yeah, I love it. When you have <laughs> your own group, Amy, you can make those shirts. That can uh-huh. be your lab T-shirt or something. The uterus is where it's at. I think that should be our tagline. Yeah. So I guess why a PhD? Why science? What interested you in that coming up? And uh, feel free to take that anywhere you want. Cool. Okay. Um, I think I, I knew from quite early that I wanted to do specifically biomedical engineering as a career. My, I had an older brother and he did engineering. So um, I think that always kind of influences things a bit. So I came to University of Auckland to do my undergrad in 2011, a long time ago now, it feels like. I did biomedical engineering for four years here and then came out of my undergrad not at all thinking about a doctoral path at all or any sort of postgrad um, study. So I went into industry for a little bit. Um, just over a year, I was working for a small startup and finding that I, I wasn't quite happy and I wasn't sure if that was what I wanted to do. So I just happened to be looking on the university website for master's opportunities. I thought, I'll go back, I'll do a master's, I'll do one year, I'll see how that goes, and just happened to come across the project. So the project itself was already determined and it had funding, and I looked at it and I thought, yeah, that looks interesting. So um, took a whim and, and met up with Andrew and JC, and, and a couple of weeks later, I'd, I'd quit my job and was back at the university. Um, so that was quite a big shift for me, um, and it, it wasn't long until I realized how different postgrad study is from undergrad, and I think it's it's something that I tell a lot of students now is that, um, you know, undergraduate is always so challenging. You've got lots of lots of balls in the air, lots of different different courses that you're doing and a range of things, and for the first time having a bit of research that was mine and that I could full-time focus on was a really rewarding experience for me. So I, yeah, really enjoyed my master's and it just kind of made sense from there. I wasn't, I just got the Winkiesel working at that point at the end of my master's. It was only just like ready to even start refining and developing and investigating. And I just wasn't quite ready to let it go. Yeah, you can't let the baby go once you once you've got it. You, you can't pass it off to someone. I could definitely feel that. Like yeah, I should benefit from this for a while. Maybe I built this. <laughs> exactly. It was I. I built this from the ground up. I tested it. I'd you know run all of these validation, and I was just happy with the direction it was going and how it might kind of turn out. Um, so it just really made sense there for me to to turn that into into my PhD. Um, yeah, and then just seems like that's how it goes from there. PhD rolls into into postdoc quite easily. Um, I'm really enjoying it so far. You mentioned um, that you come from a small town. You mentioned it when we were talking before the podcast. Will you tell us a little bit about your small town? How did you know at an early age you wanted to go into biomedical uh, engineering? How early and is this a thing in your small town? So yeah, I come from the small town called Paeroa. It's famous in New Zealand because there's a, a soft drink called LMP, which stands for Lemon and Pyro. It was made famous about 100 years ago when there was gold mining in the area. But every, everyone kind of knows it for that. And it's quite, 
it's quite a famous little town, but yeah, um, I, I kind of knew I wanted to do biomedical engineering when I was in year 11 or year 12, which is the last like three years before the end of high school. And that was mainly because my, my older brother's three years older than me. He um, was doing biochemical engineering at University of Waikato. And I was really into biology and physiology at the time and was thinking about maybe biological sciences, something like that. And he was home from university and just said, oh, Auckland University does biomedical engineering. Um, you should check that out. And that kind of led me down that path of looking into it a bit more and and liking that combination of the maths and the physics and the real engineering applications, but applied to biological systems, which is was something I was interested in as well. And so do you and your brother talk about this or have you just like ended up way far outside his field that he cannot read your papers? Um, I always send them to him Aww. and he always reads the abstract. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> Let's put it that way engineering kind of runs in the family, both me and my brother and also extended family. So both of my uncles, my dad, four or five of my cousins are all different, different flavors of engineering, I like to say. Um, and we recently had a family event where it was just too many engineers in the room. <laughs> so many engineers. Was it engineering gone sideways? <laughs> it, was, it was my brother's wedding. So it was just a party with a lot of engineers. And my sister-in-law is an engineer too, so. That is a lot of engineers. It's well, a lot of your engineers. your parents listen to this, they obviously did something right raising you and your brother. <laughs> so congrats, mom and dad. Shout out to mom and dad. They're, they're great. Very supportive. Uh, the only questions I have left are some rapid fire questions. Okay. The first question is my favorite question, and I either get really jealous or I feel better about myself. How many drafts did this paper go through? including like revision oh yes amy yes how many drafts be honest i think it would be upwards of 25 or 30 um and i think this was the third submission which i think is quite low i think that's pretty good Uh, my first paper took seven submissions before it was accepted and I, I always take the or try to at least take the reviewer feedback and it usually makes the paper stronger for the next submission. I, I clutched my chest for the audience at home when she said that, because that is just like, we don't do less than 20 for any of our, our manuscripts in my lab, Amy. So I'm going to make all my grad students listen to this. That's beautiful. Well, I was um, going to say also that, that certainly this is required listening for anyone who is earlier in their career and they maybe are preparing their first work for publication, but it hasn't been submitted yet. Because it's demoralizing often as a graduate student, hearing the initial feedback from reviewers, because so often it's very harsh or it feels very harsh because this is like your personal like self-worth almost is built into this paper at times. And hearing that that uh, initial review can be daunting. So yeah, I think this yeah. should be required listening because it is true that it often does take many times and it is a better paper for it. So yeah, thank you for, for that. For sure. And I, and I think that I also, picking up what you said as well, I don't think we sometimes maybe talk enough about how much people's emotions are actually invested in their work um, as PhD students, as postdocs, as I think any point um, when you're driving this research and you're putting 
all of your energy into these papers, it can be really hard when you get some of those reviews um, because they can feel really harsh and it's incredibly difficult, I find sometimes, to emotionally distance myself from, from those reviews because I'm so invested in the work and I, I want it to be well well accepted and, and read and, and things. So yeah, for sure, those first few reviews can often be really difficult. Um, okay, so everyone has superpowers. What would you say are your superpowers, Amy Garrett? Ooh, superpowers. You know, I'm really good at, I suppose the easy way to say is making the party happen, but uh, the more professional way to say is um, helping the social environment of the Institute by bringing bringing people together and, and instigating um, social connections uh, between research groups. We recently were challenged by another large-scale research institute to a laser tag competition. So we're about to go head-to-head -head with the Liggins Institute to see who is the best at laser tag. Uh, every week we have Friday drinks, we have social time, and the Institute is, is really great in you know, supporting those social events. This is where I uh, promote, come and do a PhD or a postdoc here at the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. Um, feel free to contact me if you're interested. Move to New Zealand. You know, it's great here. Yeah, we're all just moving to New Zealand is what's happening now. Okay, I'm going to ask one last question um, to follow up on something you said in our um, pre-chat. Amy, what video games are you playing? She, Amy is wearing some sick gamer headphones. They look amazing. I'm dying to know. What are you playing? So I mainly play a game called Valorant. It's a lot of fun. I, I play with my friends and we chat and and play games. Um, yeah, it's 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 quite a hobby of mine. I really enjoy it. Well, this has been such a delightful conversation with you, Amy. I think, like I said, that we all are just feel like we're best friends now and coming to see you in New Zealand when you hear a knock on the door. It is us, <laughs> all arm in arm. So yeah, thank you so much for getting up early and taking the time to chat with us. It was a real pleasure talking to you and your work is very impressive. It's clear how much um, work and heart you put into your work and into your, your department. I'm sure it makes a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. So yeah, you're just a real star, Amy. It was such a pleasure meeting you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a lot of fun and it was so nice to meet you all as well. On behalf of Tommy and Kara, we'll see you all next time on the next episode of Behind the Bench. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.